Actually, this is called auctions in an electronic age, which is a little bit different. A couple of weeks ago, I happened to be in Bridgeport, Connecticut, at the museum devoted to that city's most prominent resident ever, and I thought of Terry. Suddenly, my role and task at this rare book school became very clear to me. Bridgeport's favorite son, of course, was the incredible, ineffable, magnificent P.T. Barnum. I had a momentary vision of myself as the Jenny Lind of this bibliographical extravaganza, but I soon realized that my job here is to front the auction sideshow, to show you how it walks, it talks, and how very occasionally it crawls on its belly like a reptile. First, I'll try to amaze you by showing you that book and manuscripts auction should fascinate you even if you never buy or never sell a single book. I have in my hand a copy of the catalog of my favorite sale of this auction season, sold at Sotheby's in London on July 1st. This is the catalog of the Donoeschigen Incunables, which they sold then. You should have seen the exhibition of these books at Sotheby's in New York this spring. 326 of them in a row of bookcases. And you could examine them one after another. Just imagine how long it would take to call up 326 incunables in a library. That's one real feature of auctions. You can go to the exhibitions and get up close and personal with books and manuscripts you might never see otherwise, or with copies that might be very different from yours. At the exhibition this spring, you could have picked up a catalog copy for this sale. And some auction house catalogs are well worth having for reference. Sales like the Bradley Martin, Doheny, Garden, and so on are well worth a trip to the, to the exhibition and the money for the catalog. Christopher de Hamel, who is the illuminated manuscripts expert at Sotheby's in London, and who is a scholar, has habitually used his catalogs to stake out scholarly ground. You'll be reading one of his catalogs, and all at once, there'll be several pages of a thinly disguised scholarly article in the middle of a lot description. In this way, de Hamel can leap to publication long before he could do so in a scholarly journal. Thus, we first learned of his reclassification by market destination of workshops producing books of ours from one of these catalogs. On another occasion, I picked up the annual report of a major museum in New York to find a complete plagiarism of de Hamel's multi-page description of a very early deck of cards. The museum had purchased the deck of cards, to be sure, but I'm not at all certain that the curator should have signed the description with his own name. That he did, however, tells you something about the level of scholarship in that description. This year, if you have any interest in early books at all, and you don't have Paul Needham's catalog of the Donau Eschigen incunables, then you are behind the times. It contains some little bits of real bibliographical news. And it shows clearly what a real scholar can do at an auction house. Paul had been, as most of you know, the curator of manuscripts at the Morgan Library before coming to Sotheby's, and he's brought his standards with him. Now, the House of Furstenberg, which owned the court library at Donau Eschingen, 
has been amassing books since the late 15th century, adding here and there when a nearby religious house secularized, and finally incorporating the library of the German literary scholar Joseph von Lasberg in 1855. Now, the Dana Eschigen Library is interesting in that it's one that was formed by historical processes, not by the antiquarian book trade. Now, this is both good and bad in sales terms. Good, because the huge majority of these incunables were unsophisticated and in original bindings. Bad, because there were no cataloging shortcuts available because nobody had done any work on these copies. Since the early 1980s, the Furstenbergs have been selling pieces of the library at auction and by private treaty. In 1993, most of the Donoeschigen medieval manuscripts went to the state of Baden-Württemberg for 48 million Deutschmark. Evidently, that was not enough. For the incunables that the Furstenbergs had wanted to sell had been transported to the free port in Zurich in 1992 this leaves them free from everybody's country's laws. It, it's a free port within Zurich. And there they allowed auction houses and consortia of dealers to compete for the privilege of selling them. As part of the deal, the state of Baden-Württemberg had to be allowed to buy in advance a selection of incunables for the state libraries in Karlsruhe and Stuttgart. Sotheby's beat the competition. And in the case of the dealer's consortia, it was certainly a good thing. Why? Because of the catalog. These incunables had never been collated, had barely been cataloged in any way. Moreover, there was no archival information to go with these copies, so that cataloging them would be an almost purely archeological exercise. Paul Needham understood that this was the first and last opportunity for cataloging this library and he has sufficient clout at Sotheby's to be able to insist that certain things be done and that certain standards be met. Thus, there is a full collation for each entry. Moreover, at the back of the sale catalog, there is a checklist of the incunables that Sotheby's did not get to sell. That is, the ones that went to Baden-Württemberg, plus two that had been traded to the firm of Carl and Faber in 1930. Needham insisted on this inclusion, which could do Sotheby's no commercial good at all, so that the catalog would be complete. The combination of scholar and moneyed auction house came together here to produce a volume that is well worth the 26 pounds it cost to order overseas. And how Paul got that catalog done is an amazing story in itself. Now, here is Paul on March 1st, 1994, receiving the books in New York. As the only member of the book department who reads Russian well, he is coming to this task from a long siege of translating all of the documents of the Russian cosmonauts that were included in Sotheby's sale of space objects. That was fun, but incunables are what he really does, so he is delighted with the arrival of the Donoeschigen books. But it is March 1st, and the sale is July 1st. The catalog has to be at the printer by mid-May in order to be out by June 6th or 7th. Paul has over 400 incunables to catalog, plus all the other matters that surround a major sale, from talking to potential purchasers to choosing photographic plates and having them made and seeing that they came out. Moreover, on March 1st, he doesn't even know which or how many of the incunables are going to Baden-Württemberg. 
These have to be cataloged first because they're leaving soon. The minute he finds out what incunables are about to depart for Germany, he sets to cataloging them at a mad rate, even fighting the packers on occasion to get one more look at a book before it goes. Other members of the department worry that Paul might be packed in with the incunables, but fortunately this does not happen, which was a good thing because they also feared that he might not notice. <laughs> Paul gathers his forces. He has Charlotte Brown from the London Book Department for three weeks. Paul has other responsibilities, but Needham being Needham, he is working anybody else's full time on the catalog. And he presses into service two former members of Terry's program, Elizabeth Mahler and David Whitesell. David still has his daytime job with Richard Raymer, so he gets to work the night shift, which gets longer and longer. At the beginning, says Paul, it was agonizing, but when you'd run into him, he'd murmur, it's awful but I'm learning so much. He was sort of like the proverbial happy pig in mud, but with his happiness always tempered with a foreknowledge of the slaughterhouse date. To begin the cataloging process, Paul's crew groups and regroups the books by features. There isn't time to, to solve all the mysteries. For instance, there was a monstrance brand on several bindings that was from an as yet unidentified religious house that Needham thinks was near Ulm. Now there's a good article left in that one if anybody wants it. One of the interesting things about this book is the these books is the attention that was paid to provenance. And at this point, I'll stop a second to say, mark your books. One of the interesting things about these books was their history. If you have books, do your part in their history. Now back to the cataloging. As the deadline approaches, the cataloging has become a sleep deprivation experiment. Needham does a number of 24-hour days near the end. His wife and children are not amused. Despite the time pressure, Needham manages to produce a catalog that is really a record of the collection. In addition to the appendix of books that went to Bad Württemberg, it has an index of authors and titles, an index of cities and printers, an index of provenance, an index of bindings, illustrations of binding tools and ownership marks, concordances with major sources, and a list of works cited, not to mention lots of illustrations. Never satisfied, Needham, and I think this is a first in the history of auctions, plans to issue a leaf of emendations, not sale room announcements, a leaf of emendations to the catalog later this year. The sale in July was a success, as you might well imagine, though 27 incunables did not find instant homes. And more people were able to see the original of, say, the Vienna bloodletting calendar for 1462. And this is the single broadside that establishes Vienna as the fourth printing town of Europe, its type being a texture that is one of the two earliest founds to be created outside of Mainz. More people saw that calendar just before the sale than had seen it before ever. The bloodletting calendar sold for a hammer price of 200,000 pounds, plus buyer's premium to Krauss. But nobody got to be the 2,000 pound gorilla at this sale, though Krauss did shell out another 200,000 pounds for a lovely little Ars Moriendi block book known in two copies that was published in South Germany about 1475. Not every lot was expensive in incunable terms, Indeed, there were several under a thousand pounds. 
And in the middle, there were things like the Amour de Libre, a 15th century chapbook. There's one other copy, and it's at Michigan. And this is more complete than Michigan's copy, though. And I love one thing about this book, because on both the title page and in the preface, it advertises just what good value it is. It costs a Kreutzer, a penny, but it's worth a pound. And it tells you this in both places. And this went for 16,000 of, of slightly different pounds to Gunther. One other thing about these auctions, if you want to know who the big kids are among the dealers and incunables, the buyer's list is an excellent guide. This is another use of the auction price list if you happen to be selling or buying in an unfamiliar area. Now, there remain a couple of larger private collections of incunables in Germany, but you won't ever see another collection like the Donaueschigen incunables for sale on block, partly because of changes in Germany's laws for artworks and national treasures. Working with this library of incunables caused Paul Needham to learn a great deal about how to think about 15th century libraries. So he says. And as he knew rather a lot about how to think about 15th century libraries before undertaking this catalog, it may be worth reading just for clues to what he did learn. There's our first exhibit. Now the second exhibit and the part of our sideshow for people who will never buy a book or sell a book at auction is entitled Thieves. You do need to know something about auction values, just because thieves do. Hence, the number of bound volumes of scientific journals stolen off open shelves. And it's amazing how many copies of articles by everybody from Alexander Fleming to Sigmund Freud to Jonas Salk are lying around uncared for. Or let's take the huge increase in the price of Photographica and the developing interest in Native Americans. Edward S. Curtis's The North American Indian was a commercial disaster at the time of its never-ending publication, which took from 1907 to 1930. It was a $2,000 set in 1970, and a $300,000 to $500,000 star today. Because some librarians didn't keep up with prices, whole sets, including that belonging to the National Park Service, have gone walking. This is, of course, an extreme example but many other areas have become pricey. Heightened interest in autograph material means that all your copy machines need to have brightly colored paper in them so that no one can switch out originals. You even need to watch collections of science fiction now. Be warned, mark your books. If your books aren't marked, if your manuscripts aren't marked, if you don't have funds for this, Find retired librarians, retired faculty, friends of the library, whoever else, get it done or they will go. Now you will note it, so far you have glimpsed no exhibits that smack of an electronic age up to this point, except for the printing, binding, and mailing of Paul Needham's catalog in a mere two weeks' time, there has been no reference to technology so far. This is because, oddly enough, Fine arts auctioneering has not adapted itself in a very sophisticated way to an electronic age. This is odd when you consider that a billion dollars worth of fine arts goods went through each of Sotheby's and Christie's last year. 
Think of how far these houses have come in the past century. According to the historian David Canadine, as late as 1880, when agricultural land was still a primary source of wealth in the British Isles, government surveys showed that two-thirds of the land in the British Isles was owned by under 11,000 people. And in Wales, 61% of the land was owned by only 672 people. Back then, the auction houses depended on the fortunes and house cleanings of a relatively few people. Now, the major ones operate worldwide, and yet the auction business remains a strange combination of modern techniques and old-fashioned practices. Moreover, the experts in the MBAs haven't really learned to communicate with each other. We can have a fairly boring telephone exhibit here. These days, there are, of course, multiple telephone hookups to the auction room. These have provided privacy to bidders and a way to bid if you can't get there. But the telephone also has taken some of the drama out of the auctions. Somehow seeing several staff members with phones to their ears bidding oh so slowly against each other is not exactly thrilling. This process also, and more seriously, makes it more difficult for scholars to get leads to the new resting places of materials they want to see. Before multiple phones in the sale room, you at least knew who was bidding, even if he or she was bidding for someone else. And in most American auctions, because the price lists do not have buyer's names, it becomes extremely difficult when particularly manuscript material goes to the telephone. Now there are dealers who stand just out of sight in the balconies or just outside the room and call up the staff in the front of the room. This technique seems to be more showing off than anything. And buyers occasionally use cellular phones. A famous instance is that of the movie director in South Africa who was bidding on the manuscript of Alan Payton's Cry the Beloved Country as he drove from Cape Town to Johannesburg. He lost his connection and his manuscript so much for low-tech electronics. The computer exhibit, in terms of auctions, is only slightly better. If you're used to the library and university world, some of the efforts of auction houses to use computers have been both crude and funny. They've gotten the number-crunching part of it down, and this has had an interesting effect on the market for books and manuscripts. The major auction houses unwittingly have fostered a real renaissance in small and regional auctioneering because the number crunchers have demanded an ever higher minimum lot value for what will be accepted for sale. In practice, this often means that really boring books appear at major auction houses in New York and London, while really interesting books may appear at such specialist houses as Oynan and Waverly or Swan or such upstart houses as Metropolitan. Some of the smaller firms, Butterfield, Swan, and the English firm Bonhams, have banded together so that auctions at one house can be conducted interactively at all three through satellite, TV, and phone hookup. But this has happened only recently, even though Butterfields has been trying to sell auction houses on the idea for more than a decade. In terms of computerizing their cataloging, the major auction houses traditionally have been on the trailing edge of technology. One auction house had its first computer system designed by a company whose expertise was in accounting and payroll. This system cost a lot of money, but nobody had told the auction house about exercising the greatest care in making its specifications. 
The result was a cataloging system that had no lowercase capabilities. <laughs> Later systems tended to reinvent the wheel, for nobody seems to have bothered to see what the library world had learned in the preceding 45 years or so, and the results showed it. And I'll make one prediction here. Now that the OED is out on CD-ROM, you're going to see many catalog entries trying to sell books on the grounds that the first appearance of this or that word is in that book. Auction houses, however, are not alone in lagging technologically. Before we chuckle too hard, may I also tell you that it is only just now that the Bibliographical Society of America has relinquished the weirdly quaint practice of receiving articles for PBSA on diskette and then converting them to hot metal. <laughs> the computer, however, has made it much easier for observers to see the changing patterns in the auctioning of books and manuscripts. As we at ABPC have been preparing our CD-ROM of sales from 1975 to 93, we have learned quite a bit from slicing and dicing capabilities that the CD-ROM offers. Answers now are easily available to such question, if anybody cares to ask them, as how many letters written to Goethe have been sold in the last 18 years? Or have books bound in Morocco by Fazakerly of Bath gained or lessened in popularity? There are many more serious questions that can be answered, too. Why do we want to examine these patterns? Because auctions of books and manuscripts often serve to tell us about a wide range of things from politics to reading habits. A quick example would be the decline in numbers of books of hours sold and the huge ri rise in Koran sales, especially after the Ayatollah first came to power. Everybody had to have one, and a fancy one. Sales of both Latin American material and of books brought to Latin America by German immigrants have increased as currency restrictions have become greater in Latin America. With all this, the exhibit of the collector is the same old figure, occasionally dressed in a new suit. By and large, the psychological profile of the collector has changed not one whit since the original hunter-gatherers took up farming corn and started trade. Here we should have a little footnote on what happens to people when they lose their sense of history. There is an article in a recent issue of the book collector that is perhaps the most wrong-headed look at collectors I have ever seen. It mistakes the sentimental rhetoric of an age for what was really happening. Even tough old district attorney Frank Holgan, who dealt daily with Murder Incorporated, comes off as some sort of driveling sentimentalist. Association copies will always, and always have been, very dear to most collectors, and the market shows that very clearly. If you look at the copy of the new issue of Bookways, there is one article about someone who had a special copy bound by sparse gray hackle of, um, of uh, a fishing book and how he lost it and had to get it back. This hasn't changed at all. To return to the latest exhibit of the collector and his variations, in the 1980s there came into the art world a whole gaggle of high flyers for the world of finance. Some of the Ivan Bosky ilk, and Milken uh, certainly not only in buying books, but in buying book firms virtually. 
And these people built houses with art gallery wings and then proceeded to fill them with whatever was around in good condition. Now, of course, the art gallery wings are empty. The book equivalent of this photo op, sound bite sort of collecting, was seen in the, clearly in the collection of Richard Manning. He was the man who bought a copy of Poe's Tamerlane for $180,000 in 1988 and was preparing to buy the Bradley Martin copy in 1990 so that he could be the only individual, private individual, to have owned two of these at the same time. But the bottom fell out of the financial boom and his collection came up for auction instead. Manny's collection nagged at many of us. It had a lot of high spots, a number of important works, but there was something odd about his choice of books. The answer came when I ran a list of his holdings against a list of classic comics that my 13-year-old had put on the computer. The hit rate was enormous. I think now that Manny read comics, not classics. And in general, there has been a shift toward the visual and away from the unillustrated printed word, in the sale room at any rate. Part of this is reading habits, and part is the movement of art collectors away from overpriced art and into illustrated books and original illustrations, which in turn are now looking overpriced from the book person's point of view. Now $45,000 is considered cheap for a good copy of the first issue of Peter Rabbit. Popular culture has also increased its presence in the sale room. Buddy Holly's homework, at least until they discovered that his mother had saved all of it. Musical compositions by James Marshall Hendricks. And the grisly Lee Harvey Oswald material, even his toe tag from the morgue recently sold for $8,000, have aroused the sort of interest that used to be reserved for literary figures. Comic books, Disney cells, these are eagerly collected, but don't bother to bring in the letters of de Gaulle written in exile in England. History is suffering big time. Shakespeare and Mozart still are safe, but Eliot's Indian Bible, now politically incorrect, may be in trouble. But there is some happiness in all of this, for good unillustrated books in a number of areas are much more affordable to you and me than they were in the 80s. Having looked a moment at computers and collecting, let's now move on to the display of bones. In this case, the bones form the skeleton of the auction process for consigners and buyers. And it is this skeleton that Mr. Byronum over there expects me to rattle at the folks when I come to speak. Librarians and archivists have become much more sophisticated about the auction process in the last 20 years or so. Let us take the Library of Congress as an example. There was a time when LC used a pair of dealers to bid for it at auction, but had them do precisely nothing but buy what was wanted. If you are buying at auction, you should use a dealer. However, as you are paying 10% to the dealer as an agent's fee, you should have the dealer look carefully at the book or manuscript you want to buy, consult with you about its condition, and what you want to spend considering that condition, see that the book gets to you in good order, and give you his or her guarantee on the purchase. Not all auction catalogs are like Paul Needham's. Catalogers have to work fast. 
which can result in errors and omissions. One of the things that we had to do in preparing our CD-ROM version of ABPC was to erase all of our previously non-printing rude remarks about errors in catalog entries. Italian and Latin confused, Edward Lear's famous book pre-titled Journal of a Landscape Painter in Southern California instead of Calabria, <laughs> letters dated long after their writers had died, and so on. A dealer agent will give you peace of mind on this score. Dealer gives you a great deal of service for the 10%. And the guarantee means that if you find something wrong, you won't have the hassle of the return process. The dealer will. Moreover, provided that you still have a budget in these times, you may well not use the same dealer at different kinds of auctions. What LC did in the early 70s was to have these two ladies, who are well known in the field of early books, do all of their auction buying for them. Again, LC did not ask for reports or consult with them. And of course, when the two ladies turned up at Americana auctions, Everybody else knew precisely why they were there. If everybody else in the room was feeling cheerful about Elsie, then the book or letter might be had for a reasonable price. But if somebody wasn't feeling so cheerful about Elsie or was feeling just plain devilish, then the price might well be high. And if the two ladies didn't manage to snare the desired books, they weren't likely to hear about another copy that might be available from a dealer because they really didn't know the Americana dealers. Do remember that at some auctions, more business is done in the halls than in the room. So you may be looking for a specific copy of a book at auction, and you may not get it, but you may hear of another copy because of your dealer who was at the auction, which you may get, hopefully, at a lower price. <clears throat> when you give your bid to your carefully chosen dealer, be certain you know whether you want to give the dealer the latitude of plus one. What does plus one mean? If, say, you give a bid limit of $1,000 on an item, and the bidding goes back and forth among dealers, your dealer's turn may come at 950 and his opponent's at $1,000, just because of the back and forthing of the bidding. If your dealer is caught on the wrong foot in the bidding, will you let him or her bid one more time? That's something that you need to discuss and decide in advance. One time that you do contact an auction house directly is if, when you are trying to sell, is if you are trying to sell, say, your entire theological library. Auction houses do many private placements these days, especially, as you might guess, when they are offered large collections of books or papers that have little commercial but much scholarly value. How about selling? For important books, competition may well produce a better price for you than selling through a dealer. If you get an important collection by gift and it does not fit into your collections, you can ask an auction house to do an appraisal, and here I'm assuming that the donor hasn't tied you up so that you have to keep it. Then if you sell within a year, you don't have to pay for the appraisal. If, like the Gene Autry Museum, whose librarian was here for two years, two years, you come into a huge collection of duplicate reference books and other material that doesn't fit your profile, then a regional auction house is a good bet to get a good price and save you time and trouble. Be certain that you nail down the particulars, though. 
Who pays and how much for packing and shipping? Who does the packing and shipping? What about insurance and illustrations? If there are things that you want kept together, you have to say that. Do you want to review the cataloging? All these things need to be hammered out in, in advance. And finally, if the collection is important, can you negotiate the consigner's fee downward? When consigning, remember that the stance of the auction house has changed. Time was when the auction house was the agent of the seller. The seller paid the sole commission to the auction house, and thus the auction house was on the seller's side, almost pure and simple. Then came the water's muddying innovation known as the buyer's premium. Now both the seller and the buyer pay a commission to the auction house, and the result is an ambivalence of loyalties. This is nothing to worry about overly, but it is something to consider when consigning. It also means <clears throat> that you, if you have something important to consign, have uh, the ability to bargain about the commission that you pay because you know that there's money coming from the other side as well. Now, if you simply need money and want to sell at auction, you must have at least a rough idea of what does sell at auction. But do not hire a so-called library consultant. Many of these people go into libraries, make recommendations about what sh uh, should be sold, often without real regard for the collections. And then what do they do? With your fee already in their pockets, they shop the auction houses and the dealers to see who will give them the best finder's fee, and then recommend that particular kickerbacker to you. You probably would be just as well off with what has been called the pipe test. Go to the lower level of your library and see what you are keeping in proximity to the water or steam pipes. <laughs> These are good con candidates for sale, or theft for that matter. Whatever you decide to sell, make certain that the proceeds go where you want them, and make certain before the sale takes place. In a number of institutions, a library has decided to sell books and put the proceeds in a book fund, only to find that the powers that be decide that this nice little wad of cash should benefit some other operation of the institution. Years ago, when the Museum of Natural History in New York had just such a sale, the treasurer's office called and said, that was great, could you do another one next month? And then took the money for a new exhibit. To sum up the practicalities, buy it through a dealer, sell it yourself, and in both cases, know what you are doing and what the price should be. Such is our auction skeleton, the handiest one of our exhibits. And now, ladies and gentlemen, our tour of the auction sideshow comes to an end. And Mr. Barnum invites you to the reception tent for questions and general merriment. I thank you very much for listening.